Hello, I am Joel McLeod. I'm Roland Tanner. And welcome to uh, this episode of the 905er. Uh, uh, if you've been following us on uh, online the last couple of days, uh, we've been promoting that we were panelists uh, this Tuesday past uh, with the Community Climate Council's webinar on Highway 413. All this uh, stemmed from our uh, episode with Sarah Buchanan a few weeks ago uh, on Highway 413. Um, Roland, what were your what were your thoughts on the on the experience? It was great. Uh, I really enjoyed it for for a number of reasons. First, um, it was like a uh, I know I was saying it in an email. Um, they should come up with a, with a name for it. It's like a, a power workshop or something like that. The whole thing happened in an hour. But we had almost the same number of speakers you'd have in a day, and I really liked that because although you were left at the end of the hour going, "Hey, you could have spent longer on this, and you could have spent longer talking." Um, uh, you know, it was like um, the meat of a much longer workshop was mm-hmm. was uh, uh, sort of done really quickly, and I, I it's like, wow, I could do another one of those this evening and not feel, you know, like I'd uh, <laughs> well, I, <laughs> turn I, my brain to mush. I like um, you. You and I have been to many, many conferences and um, stuff like this, and it, I mean, by the end of the day, you're you're you're, you're right. Your brain just turns to mush. And you're like, oh my gosh, this thing, another speaker on. And with the best will in the world, with the absolutely best will in the world, you end up kind of bored. <laughs> and yes. I have never, ever left a workshop or a meeting or anything thinking, oh, I could, t- could have done with more of that. Um, that's a first. So congratulations on, on that. Um, th- that's not really anything to do with the subject area. I just th- thought it was awesome. Um, and, you know, every council meeting, every uh, every committee you're part of could learn uh, lessons from uh, from that kind of uh, give yourself a really tight deadline and just do it. Um, but the the subject area also was you know, hugely important. So Highway 14, 413, sorry, um, that we've talked about a few times now on the podcast. Um, uh, this uh, group, the um, uh, and I, uh, the names just gone out of my head. The the climate um, Cum- community climate council uh, are a youth orientated uh, group that uh, is kind of works under the auspices somewhat of um, uh, environmental defense. Um, really good group of people. And I mean, obviously, uh, they they are focused on the uh, um, Peel region, I believe, uh, is, mm, is kind of right. where they're, they're primarily focused, but it's obviously relevant uh, to a wider area. But the 413 obviously goes right through that whole area. And I don't know, I think... Very much that this is a cause for a younger generation. That that uh, you know, my generation, to an extent, certainly my parents' generation, were, were the road builders, and uh, you know, an awful lot of of, of uh, I hate saying millennials, but millennials and people who are just at the younger age of the scale don't drive a lot anymore. Don't bother learning to drive in the way that we did, where it was a rite of passage. Uh, certainly, if they live in a city. Um, you know, the people I know live in Toronto um, often don't have cars. Uh, just looking at uh, mobility in a in a different way, um, and uh, you know, it's I mean, it's unfortunate we're going to have to fight this fight against a uh, backwards, unimaginative um, government from yesteryear in a lot of ways. Uh, I, I really feel um, it's a shame we're going to have to do this. I'm very optimistic that it can be stopped. 
um, uh, the first speaker um, mentioned that you know the federal government has the option to insist on a full and proper um, environmental assessment rather than uh, the province getting away with some kind of shortened version. And you know, the reason they want to shorten the environmental assessment is, A, they don't believe in any kind of uh, consultations with anybody ever, and they know the environmental assessment would come back with uh, all kinds of uh, objections to the road, as the previous one did. Um, so that's that's one line, is to get the, the federal government to uh, do what it can to insist on the right procedures. We're not asking for them to step into a provincial matter. We're asking them to insist on the procedures that are in place being um, obeyed. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's so important. And it's so important also that, that, that people get the message that, um, objecting to these things loudly and vociferously, um, does actually work. It may not look like it's working, but it does. Well, what I, I was amazed, uh, by the, the conference for a, a for a webinar, um, we we asked at the start uh, how many people they had attending, and they were they were estimating about a hundred to a hundred, maybe a little bit over a hundred people had signed up to participate, and there was a good uh, a good turnout uh, for the for the webinar. Um, the the speakers that they had, I mean, we were just two schlubs on the on the on the agenda, um, but they had a. Three other, we shared the stage, so to speak, with three other people. Uh, I'm just going to re- read their names out. Uh, James Olofs, uh, sorry, Irene Ford and Jenny LaForcier. Uh, uh, the latter two are, I was impressed by them because they were, they're very much just uh, regular citizens. They're, these, they're not professional politicians. They're not professional uh, advocacy uh, people, but they're, they're very clearly passionate citizens who, uh, who live in areas that are going to be directly impacted by this highway. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it'll, it will go pretty much in their backyard. Uh, and, uh, and then James is from, uh, Toronto, uh, you know, ur- ur- urban, urbanized Toronto, and he's against it. Uh, and so it was very clear that the, the objection to this isn't just, you know, oh, nimbyism. It's very clear that there's a, a very, uh, educated and I'm uh, dare I say informed, uh, and emotional response to this project. Um, there are people who look at it as, uh, you know, it, it's cutting through vital farmland, farmland that is vital, not just to Ontario, not just to the 905, but really, if you think about it, to Canada as a whole, this is farmland that like, this is where Canada grows its, its crops. It, the, it, you know, it, this is all connected. And if you take a step back and you think about it, it's an, the agricultural business, the agricultural industry is vital here in Ontario. It's the, the I believe so, I've either read somewhere that it's the top or second largest industry here in Ontario. Um, and rightfully so. It's often underestimated. And yeah. Um, and this highway just going to cut right through uh, pretty much the backbone of, of this industry. Uh, the, the areas that are needed are, this is, Vital. It's an important soil. It's important and some fertile ground that grows food for us. It's it's wetlands that protects our environment for um, le- uh, uh, wildlife and, and endangered species in some cases. And it, I mean, it's very clear that this isn't this is stirred up a passionate storm for uh, not just the speakers but the people who were attending. We went into breakout rooms uh, online uh, afterwards, and there were people who were who were 
you can tell that the average person is very much stirred up about this. This isn't, I don't think this is going to go away anytime soon for, uh, for the Ford government. Well, and I think they count on the fact that many people, perhaps particularly people from younger generations, assume that there's nothing they can do um, and assume that their voices will be ignored. And, um, uh, you know, it's certainly the case that, that all levels of government have an ability to ignore people. Um, uh, yeah, you know, sometimes, frankly, that's the right thing. You know, if you're, you've got people lining up to bring back the death penalty or something, I'm kind of, um, I'm all for the government <laughs> doing what it can to, uh, avoid that. But, uh, but no, generally, absolutely not. Uh, and uh, well, here's here's the big here's the big thing between what you just you, the example you gave in this is that you, it matters if you have enough people behind you. If there if there's a, a large enough movement, and this is one of the points that I was making to uh, in our, in the breakout room that I was in, that the the biggest myth in politics is that your voice doesn't matter. Uh, it, it's it's the, the idea that oh well you know. I send an email, I call my MPP's office or at my MP or my counselor's office and they, they don't respond back. If there's enough people who, that you, if you can organize and you can mobilize uh, and you turn that anger that's out there into a, into a focused wave of energy, um, it's, it's a terrifying thing for an incumbent politician. I mean, that's, that's ultimately what you need to tell them is that you you know, if you, if you're going to, if you're intent on moving forward on this project, your seat is in danger. Your job is in danger in, in, cause if you think about it, they only have what, two years left in, in office. Yeah. Kind of 18 months really. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if you have, they have all that time to either sell you to change your opinion, or you have, you can say there's more of us, you need to change yours. And that's it. It's. And here's the other thing that if you live in the 905 region, particularly if you live in the urban 905, um, you, 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 you're the kingmaker, not just in Ontario, but in Canada, amazingly yes. enough. Um, Toronto is basically NDP liberal. The conservatives make, made some inroads in there in the last election, but not huge ones. On, on the still, peripherals, like Scarborough and Etobicoke. Yeah. Yeah. Toronto, where an awful lot of seats, they're always going to be progressive. They're never going to be conservative. Um, the, most rural parts of Ontario uh, are by and large conservative. They're always going to be conservative. They're not going any other way anytime soon. So where does switch? The 905. So um, unfairly, is a, a very unfair product of the way our electoral system works, but it just so happens to be that if you want to get the conservatives out, it's the, nine, it's the 905, what will do it? Mm -hmm. um, so you know, a, a road that... Um, destroys things that people are uh, attached to and value uh, for a for a purpose that really the 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 argument for this road is completely absent um you know i mean even if you were even if i were a fan of highways this wouldn't be the one i'd be building first you know um, well the 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 argument the only argument that is being made for the highway is our population is going to grow we need infrastructure to match it Okay, interesting. On, on, at face value, yeah, you're you're going to agree with that. Except that argument was also made for the 407. That argument was made to build the 407. The population is growing. We need to get traffic off the 401. Let's build the 407, and that's going to alleviate congestion on the QEW, the 403, and the and the 401. That has not materialized. Um, as we said in the in the webinar, 
you drive over the 401, sorry, 407, uh, pretty much at any, any overpass along it. And you're going to be, you're going to be looking at like an empty roadway, a very underutilized roadway that is nowhere near the capacity that it needs to be to properly function as a, as a decongestor. I don't know if that's the right word for the 401 um, traffic. Adding another highway that goes upwards of King City, way, way out of your your destination to go around Toronto. Um, I, I don't, I don't see the, uh, I, I just don't see the feasibility of it. Yeah, I don't see the point. I don't see the point unless you're building huge communities around that highway, because because as it w- would be on day one. Well, if you live in Barry and work in Hamilton, um, awesome. <laughs> That'll be great for you. Uh, but how many people do that? Not many. Um, very, very few, I would imagine. It's good, um, it's good for the few rich in, in the area who have cottages and places yeah. up in Muskoka. You know, it might, might shave a couple, a couple of minutes off your trip. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, like, is it going to be this great deterrent for tractor trailers and, and traffic go, trying to get, th- you know, basically, if you think about it, from Windsor through to Quebec City, they have to cut through Toronto, cut through the 905 that way. And that's what this is supposed to do. Oh, it's, we're just going to go around it. I don't buy that for a second. Um, and the first speaker, whose name I'm just looking James, up. Uh, Aloff. Um, James Aloffs. Yeah. Yes. Um, he made two really good points. Uh, one point was that the... Because of COVID, uh, the uh, 407, I believe, is is uh, facing some financial difficulties at the moment. And is actually, believe it or not, um, kind of asking the province for something of a of a bailout. Uh, now, I don't have the details. That's that's I'm just literally reciting that from memory. Um, but that puts the province in a good position to say, "Hey, um, okay, we're going to insist that haulage um, freight." Uh, takes the 407 rather than the 401 or yeah things like that to get concessions out of that group mm-hmm. that would better utilize that highway um since it's there already we might as you know we can't dig it up frankly i'd quite like to but you know um uh all kinds of things which which, which don't cost 10 billion dollars um and, and and actually would have a benefit for all sorts of us. I mean, right now the haulage doesn't take the 407 because cost too um, much. Yeah, um, you know, nobody takes the 407 because it ta- costs too much. I mean, literally, I will take it once or twice a year when I'm going to a cottage or going to Kingston or something like that. Um, because on those rare occasions, it's like, okay, I'll pay the whatever it is. But you know, every day, you've got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other point he made is that that the Ontario doesn't. You know, we live in a very large province um, in a very large country, but what we don't have much of in Ontario is 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 farmland. We have very very little, and it's it's pretty much all around the areas that are most urban. Um, you know, the the best, highest quality, most productive, most valuable land is, is the land that's closest to us um, here in the nine hundred five. So um, it's. You know, it is literally taking the food out of our mouths somewhere to 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 build on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and sure, you can then well, we can always go and get it from Alberta or whatever. But you know that then you're trucking it across Canada. So great, you, you've you've caused two problems now. Um, it you know, in the arguments are so um, 
so obvious uh, uh, it's uh, it's so frustrating that we're still having these arguments i mean I, I think i think it was jane jacobs or someone like that who said in the 60s you know the idea of building roads to reduce traffic is like uh trying to lose weight by by taking your belts out a couple of notches you know it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't work that was you know i wasn't even born then when that was said and yet we're still having this this argument um i think change is coming um, I, I feel like you know mm-hmm. the last government hardly built any roads and put huge investment into transit. And I'm not trying to pick them up or whatever. I'm just saying that's a fact. Go look at the numbers. Um, uh, so that was progress for a uh, mainstream political party to sort of take that approach. Um, so you know, unfortunately, we, we're now stuck with these these. Yeah, I know it's a cliche, but dinosaurs that we have to deal with. Well, it's just a lack of lack of imagination to a problem uh, to the problem because, quite frankly, we are running out of places to build highways that that are useful. Um, you know, this is uh, uh, I think it's just a waste of tax dollars. This is money that should be spent on uh, expediting the the COVID nineteen response. We're going to need money. We're going to need money and financial work to. I think jumpstart the economy once we're out of COVID-19. I'd rather see the $6 billion or $9 billion spent on that as opposed to um, uh, putting up a, a, a highway that I, I think will take – it's highly questionable if it's useful or, or not. I'd rather say give that money to small businesses to help them reopen, uh, help us navigate a new new economy. Uh, there's, there's so many other alternatives and exciting alternatives that are possible. Be, I mean – this pandemic has shown, I think, has given us a few options that we really never considered before. But the the fact that all of us are working from home, we're all working from uh, a lot of us are working from home. We're no longer commuting. Everybody says, "Oh, I miss you know going out for a pint at the bar with my friends, having a backyard barbecue, all that." I've never heard anyone say, oh, "I really missed the hour long commute." That that's what I really miss. I re- I really miss going into the you know going into a meeting every day, um, every Monday morning. It's you know, people are, I think, for the most part, are enjoying working from home. They're working, they're, they enjoy the much greater flexibility that it gives them in their work-life balance. And stuff is still getting done. Um, I, I would, I would, I'd be more interested in seeing a government trying to encourage that through either tax incentives or just, you know, help saying if you want to drop a, you know, the, all those Bay Street offices, if you want to drop a couple floors off your lease, we'll help you buy out leases with your landlords or something again a better use of that six or nine billion dollars than well you know what i mean seriously if we were to say okay let's give up some of those office blocks um because people can work at home now and frankly they've been able to work at home for 20 years it's crazy it's taken this long it's taken a, a global catastrophe to bring it about but i don't think we're going back i think if we do go back to commuting we're idiots um but you know what? We've got a housing crisis for affordable housing. What about you yes. taking some of those office blocks and turning them into affordable housing in really nice parts of downtown Toronto? Wow, that would be cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's like he, he how many he, stones? How many th- birds do you want to kill with how many stones? <laughs> well, if you think about it, like I mean, this is a, a bit of a tangent and a sidebar. But if you think about it, if you take some of those floors and convert them into condos. Think of the the nightlife, the the restaurants and small businesses that would pop up in downtown Toronto. Think think of like the 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 vibrant atmosphere that you know if a few millennials being able to afford a condo in you know First Canadian Place or Scotia Bank Tower or, or the RBC Tower 
And then, yeah, they were able to work from home or better yet, maybe they just get in the elevator and go down two flights of, you know, two stories and they get off and they, they're into the, uh, their weekly meeting or whatever. That's, that's the future I think we could be embracing if we had the imagination to go for it, which would, again, alleviate the need for traffic going, the traffic solutions of just building highways going forward. Um, there, there's so many exciting options that are, that are out there. I don't think this government is really embracing. Um, I don't, I'm not going to say for reasons why, because quite frankly, I don't know the facts of it are, of it is, but I just think there is a bit of a lack of imagination on part of the Ford government. Well, I think the, the conservative ideology always seems to me, and maybe, maybe I'm being unfair, but no, I mean, it seems to me at its most positive, an ideology based on everything's just fine. Can we just leave it alone? And if possible, can we go back a few years? Cause it was better then. Um, it wasn't, you know, I mean, study history. It's never been better then. Um, we're very fortunate to be living when we live now. We have so many possibilities that would make life better for people. And it's like, again, one of my favorite hobby horses is trying to design a better conservative party um, or a better progressive <laughs> conservative party. So telling them what they should be doing. Right? Waste. Let's, what's, what's the most wasteful thing that we do? Get in a car with one person with a two to six liter engine uh, burning fossil fuels pile up a highway to a somewhere that has a computer in it connected to the same network as your computer at home mm-hmm. and tap away on a keyboard and then get in that engine and drive it all the way back. <laughs> it's the most wasteful. I, I, would thing. To, I would love to see the progressive conservative or any party become more of an innovation party. I think going coming out of COVID where we should have more investment in infrastructure, not, not highways, obviously, but um, more, more fiber optic cables. Uh, you know, we, there's a, we, we, you and I have had this running joke offline of how horrible internet is. And we live in an urbanized area. We live in Burlington. It is not rural Ontario. It is not, it's not, we're not out in the sticks. We are very much in urban areas and our internet, um, the number of times we've had issues with internet connectivity is astounding. And I said, this is, you know, this is the 21st century. This internet is kind of like almost like turning on the water and we don't, we don't, to me, I said any party want, that wants to, I think, really be progressive or, or, or innovative should be looking at stuff like that. How do how do we build that out? Not just in the urban and suburban areas, but the entire province into the rural parts as well. Uh, do that. How do you, how do we encourage more working from home and a better work life balance? And it's, I mean, it's again the progressive the progressive conservative party has in their mindset of this. You know, this idea of, oh, you know, dad gets up, puts on the suit, goes into work, comes home at five. It's like, that doesn't even work anymore. People are working two or three jobs just to put rent, uh, a rent payment in that, that month. It's not, it, we should be doing things better and more smarter, uh, than what we're doing in them currently. Yeah. They're smart. Yeah. And that, you know, to be honest, they'd really have to work to ever get my vote, but I would, res- I would have respect for a, progressive conservative party that was like you know what we've always been talking about getting rid of waste we've always gone after government waste and sure you want to go after that you know the 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 truth of it is you'd be surprised how little government waste there is in terms of programs at least um what there is though or what we know because we do it every day because we have no choice is huge amounts of waste in the way we live Mm -hmm. uh, that could that can be eliminated without inconveniencing anybody and actually making our lives a hell of a lot better. 
you know, I mean, I, I grew up in the kind of the equivalent, uh, or equivalent outside London of what Burlington is outside Toronto. Everybody in my family commuted, and I was like, I'm damned if I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, every day in, into London and back. Um, it's no one enjoys it. No one wants to do it. Um, and but now we have the potential not to do it. You know, back in the 70s, there wasn't a choice. Um, you know, be the champion of 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 efficiency of, of better lifestyles for people. And, and my goodness, that might be a, a, something that's worth um, paying attention to. But let's um, maybe take a take a um, change of direction and just cover a couple of those stories that we were we were sure. thinking about covering on on Tuesday. Um, is uh, for 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 Burlington listeners, I know we have quite a few. Um, it was a uh, um, if those of you remember the 2018 election in Burlington, which was quite a contentious one. Um, just before the election happened, right during a sort of campaign season, there was a property uh, propo- a property development proposal from Reserve Properties Limited for a building on Brant Street, directly opposite City Hall. Um, and the proposal was, uh, if I remember right, 24 stories. Um, and, uh, it would have, or it will form a, uh, a, a kind of twin tower, um, a double of another, uh, tower, which is even taller. I think 27 stories across the road, uh, being developed by, by another developer. Now, um, the long story short, this went to LPAT. Uh, and it went to LPAT as the first um, appeal to go to the new LPAT at that time, under the rules as they had been brought in by the by the Win uh, Liberal government. Uh, and it's the only appeal in Burlington that has proceeded under those rules. Uh, and as of last week, uh, we understand um, it has now become the the pretty much the the only. Um, well, I think the last sort of victory in terms of the OMB or LPAT that Burlington had, the sort of out and out victory was, um, uh, to do with, um, uh, I think it was in Ward four or five. Um, it was a, it was back in about 2018 as well. Uh, since then, we've mainly been seeing negotiated settlements on, on all these appeals. Um, now, reserve properties, it isn't a win technically. What's happened is that reserve properties have withdrawn their appeal against the city's decision, which was for a 17-story building. Um, now, what could happen, um, you know, I do think this is good news. I think it's very interesting news, whether it's good news or not. Um, the reserve properties can go ahead and build a, uh, something of 17 stories, which was not what citizens certainly wanted at the time. And was there's a whole lot of kind of information which I, I wrote about on, on our website, if you're interested in the details about why 17 stories was allowed at that place when right next door it would have been um, only a maximum of 11. Um, but uh, you know, to cut all that as short as I possibly can, um, uh, you know, it's a win. It won't be more than 17. But what could happen now is that reserve properties could simply throw that entire application in the bin and uh, produce another one for a 30-story building, uh, go to council on that one, and they would then be under the new LPAT rules, which, um, well, yeah, you'd have to reckon they'd have a far better chance of success, which is no doubt why they've withdrawn. So whether it ends up being a good news story, time will tell. Um, but uh, uh, 
but I, I think it's illustrative most of all about the difference between uh, what the last government was trying to achieve in terms of a move towards a more balanced relationship between these appeals bodies and developers and uh, municipalities and what we have now with the Ford government again uh, basically saying let's just tear up everything that gets in the way of developers um, and you know the the tragic results that we're seeing as a result of that mm -hmm. well yeah I mean that just goes to show you the the priorities of the current government it's something you you and I have been uh, humming and humming about about how the you know our community our communities are more than just buildings they're more it's more than just you know how how many stories and how many um you know where where do we want to put condo towers i i find that, i find that, like, here in Burlington our, our, the debate on the official plan was uh again a bit of a red herring there's there's no effort to really come up with an idea of what do we want our communities in the 905 to look like um you know every it just seems that we just get into this developer versus city council uh mindset because it, it's, the, you're right, the system is set up to benefit the developer. The developer can say, well, I don't have to work with you to say, what do I, what, what do we want to build? You know, what, like, how do we build neighborhoods that uh, are dense enough to satisfy uh, the, the, the growing urbanization that's happening in the 905, but innovative enough to keep green space to, to use technology. As we, as we said earlier, there's talk more about, um, uh, people want to stay at home and work from home more. That's great. But how do we build communities that reflect that? That's not that we, you know, maybe we don't need the strict uh, communities of, oh, we have a downtown office core and we have the suburban outer areas. And then, you know, we'll just put a few strip malls in between to fill up the, the amenities. Like what, what if we actually start thinking of how do we re reimagine these communities that they, they're a little bit more utilitarian for all purposes to allow businesses to to thrive, but also like allow us to actually live together, not just in compartmental areas. I think it's such a massive subject, um, but it's such an important subject that we that we do start paying better attention to because it's tie, tied into how we deal with climate change. It's tied into, like you say, how we live our lives and, and quality of life, and um, and you know. Designing better cities, uh, cities that we can be truly proud of and not feel are just kind of off the shelf North American cities, you know. Um, there's so I feel, and I'm not enough an expert, uh, not enough of an expert to really say this, but I I feel that the entire way the zoning system of North American cities is ultimately not helpful because it comes down to this negotiation, which is very adversarial over the zoning on each piece of land. And in theory, the city says what you can build anywhere. And in practice, it's, you know, it's all up for debate. Um, uh, the debate in recent years in, in Ontario has particularly been about downtown areas because, because in effect, the province has said, uh, we're going to take a lot of the responsibility away from municipalities about what happens in your downtowns, um, which again is kind of uh, was proved to be problematic the intentions that i believe were good um uh, but you know again this this idea that the way we do things is the only way things can be done is is a mistake that's made around the world there's no such thing as zoning in in europe you you, you uh i can't See, I'm not, definitely thing. not next 
Well, it's the old 1950s suburbanization model, right? As everybody left this, if you think about it, this, even in North America, the city was built around like the European model. Like if you go back long enough, far enough in your, in your head, you had the clone, the colonizers come over, they settled the land, they built York, which was net, which is now Toronto. But I mean, they didn't, they didn't build it on a principle of like, okay, this will be the, this will be this type type of district and this will be where everybody lives. And then we're going to have the finance district and this area. That all came just by accident, really. Um, initially it was just a group of houses that all got together and, you know, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a tanner over here and I'm going to be a, a print shop over here and I'm going to, I'm going to be a butcher shop in this corner here. Okay, great. That's, that's how it worked. And then, pretty much like that's that's how cities work then you had the the rural parts where you had all your farmers and they had a couple small towns but then in the 1950s that's when you had the suburbanization of we all moved out into these neatly gentrified you know grid-shaped cities like neighborhoods and that's pretty much for the latter half of the 20th century is how we lived our lives was this idea of oh this is you know this is where you're supposed to go you you move out of the city and you move into this cookie cutter lifestyle the, the grid mentality I mean, it's produced some wonderful cities i mean obviously new york is laid out on a grid and it, you know one of the one of they, if not the they, they had to because it's an island like oh well, yeah that's true it, i mean it's new york city is an is an island um or or they built a, a grid pattern because there was just well no we just need a couple eight hectares of land okay well just build a grid and that's what worked but i think what we need we need to we, and that's it also what's, that's what's working with our current um, highway problem. Going back to the beginning of this episode, you know, we're just like, oh, we, we, people need to drive back and forth. And it's like, no, what if, what if we reshaped the way that we're thinking of this? What, what if we th- thought about what do we need to get around for? Um, it, it, there's, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of coming out of this pandemic. And I know I'm beating a dead horse here. There's a lot of, interesting ideas how do we want to relive our how reshape our lives how do we want to live now not just like okay we're safe now we can go and interact but you know what have we really missed do we do we want to go back into just a oh well i got to get up at five so i can get on the highway to go into my office job or do you say no i like seeing my family when i wake up in the morning i like having a cup of coffee with them and then logging on and doing some work and making a few phone calls and and all that and if you do work a frontline job do you want it to be something a little bit closer to home, not something that you have to rush into, uh, uh, you know, in, into another community to, to do. There's so many possibilities that we could, if we just sat down and re put the people first, as opposed to the, the, the rush to just do build something, right. Instead of just taking the time and saying, how do, how are people going to benefit from this? How are people going to work better, live better, you know, interact better? And you just you think of, you know, when I did stress, so say we work from home, we work from our home office most of the time. We communicate over the internet with with our colleagues, rather than driving to see them every day. <clears throat> and then at the end of the day, well, because we're not spending two hours or an hour and a half in a car, we can take a wander down to a nice pedestrianized uh, mm-hmm. city uh, downtown, where there are restaurants and patios because uh, the cars aren't plowing through the main street anymore. Uh, and we socialize with our family and our friends more than we than than we used to be able to um and you know so we we're seeing a bit less of colleagues in person a little bit less socializing then but a lot more socializing uh with the people who mean the most to us 
why is that going to be so difficult to make happen? Look, is there anybody listening who thinks that sounds like a bad vision? <laughs> I, I would, I would, I would love to hear uh, from those people that, that if you honestly think that's a bad idea, the idea of like, yeah, I work work from home, or you know, and I, I I put in my my hours of work, but at the end of the day, yeah, I can walk to a to an area of restaurants and boutiques, and yeah, actually be a human being with my friends and family. Like to me, I'm like that's what I you work for. Is you work to be with your friends and family to enjoy their company and, and enjoy their life. Um, I think for most of us, for most of our lives, that that kind of thing is the it's a rare. It's rare that you can do that, particularly on a weekday, mm-hmm. because you get back from work, you've got to take the kids to the whatever you've got to take the kids to. Uh, you've uh, got to iron a shirt for the next day. You've got to fill the car up with gas. You've got to, you know, all these things get in the way of of lifestyles that do exist in other parts of the world and that never went away. I mean, again, I hate to keep on banging on about Europe. I, I don't want to be like this guy who's like, I used to have a friend who was from Germany and we just made fun of him for the, <laughs> our Germany is so much better. <laughs> I don't want to sound like that guy. But we do have to recognize that there are certain things they really nail, not so much in Britain. So I'm not sort of tooting my own horn. No, here. but we could, like, we could look at Italy and France. And but I think Spain. we could rebuild something a lot better and a, lot, a little bit more utilitarian a little bit more friendly to human what's most important to us as human beings um which i guess kind of brings us on to the current my the last bit of information that i, I want to touch upon was that uh halton mayors surprise surprise they did something i agree with <laughs> uh <laughs> the 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 halton mayors put a uh or went to the regional council and said that they wanted to put out a statement requesting that the province switch their COVID-19 protocols uh, limits from a, a strict hard cap of, I believe it's now 10, into a percentage of fire code capacity, which I honestly agree with. I think it's a good idea uh, to reshape the argument uh, in that manner. The problem is I don't think anybody's going to listen uh, because the last time the mayors decided to do write letters, the last three times they were dead wrong on the letters, which were, hey, we're perfectly okay. We're different in Halton. Open us up for business. Don't put restrictions on us. And then case numbers went through the roof and we got into lockdown. Um, this is the message I think the Halton mayor should have been saying from day one, uh, not day four. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I I agree in that I certainly, yeah, absolutely. My first reaction when I heard about this was like, you've got to be kidding me. Here we go again. This is just another attempt to get around the rules. Um, and, uh, I, again, I, I'm not enough of an expert really, but thinking about it again, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, square footage makes, does have a logic to it that simply be nicer to us, r- remove the restrictions from us, uh, doesn't have, um, it. And if, if, if that square footage calculation number per square feet is based on some kind of proven scientific logic of, of, of how, uh, you know, with the correct ventilation, all those things, we we can be be safe. Then, then yeah, I I, I think I'm happy with that too. But yet, you're absolutely right that I just saw this uh, when it was brought to my attention and thought, oh my god, they're doing it again. Can they just leave off? So that they, they, yeah, and they certainly burnt a lot of goodwill with. Um, yeah, maybe I'm overstating it. Maybe it's only busybodies like me who they've burnt goodwill with. But um, I do think it goes beyond that, though. Well, I think I, 
here's the thing. At the, the first time we did it, I thought, okay, well, I mean, we did have the, the mayor on to, to talk about it. I thought, okay, well, give her the benefit of the doubt. And then a few, you know, a few weeks later, those case numbers went up and we had to go into a stricter uh, level of, uh, of, of COVID pro- protocols. And then it just seemed like every time the, the mayor's come, it's like, oh, don't put us in a lockdown. Don't put us in the lockdown. All of a sudden, numbers went back up. Uh, partially because I think the word gets out, oh, we're, we're fine here. Everything is perfectly safe. I can go out and about and do my business. Um, and it's something that I, th- I think at the provincial level, this government, the provincial government is uh, dropping the ball on is in terms of, again, how do we live with COVID? It, it, for the sense, pretty much since uh, the the summer, uh, almost a year ago, the the product, the actions of the government has pretty much just been okay. We're going to open up, and then when things get too bad, then we're just going to shut it back down. There's been no notion of like let's reshape how we live our lives. So to say that to the small business owner, not just restaurants, but the the you know, the small boutique, the small shop owner who was told you have to shut down because you're you're so you're you're, you're the cause of all the spread, but then you're still going to allow Walmart and Home Depot and all these big box stores. Oh, you can stay open because you're quote unquote essential. I think that's, that's confusing. Why can't I go to a, a mom and pop hardware store that can only allow in maybe two or three at a time? And I'm, you know, we're all masked and yeah, we stay six feet apart from each other. And I go in and buy my hammer or my, my, my saw or whatever it is that I need. I'm out, I'm, I'm helping a small business and I'm out the door. I never, I never got that, that notion. Um, it, it just seemed to me that there was no, nobody sat down to actually talk with small business owners. Like, how do we, how, how, how can we make you safer? Um, and that's, that's what got me was that I, it was clear all this talk of Doug for said, Oh, you know, I feel for you. I feel for you. I don't, I'd be curious. Did he actually ever actually talk to a small business owner? Did he actually talk to someone and say, how do you, can you tell me how you think you can make your, your store safe for people? Because I bet a lot of small businesses are sitting. You're listening to this right now, saying, "Yeah, I, I put in, I, I put in dividers, I put in plexiglass, I put in protocols. We, we wash our hands like every customer. You know, we're, we're we, we, we got the markers on the floor and all, like all that stuff that the people are putting in to try and keep you safe. Um, why, 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 why were they safe? And here, the, my last point that I want to make before I hand it off to you, Roland. The reason why this, these answers were never uh, brought forward." or never answered, uh, was because we don't know necessarily where the COVID numbers are coming from. We know the case numbers are going up, but if you remember, like we stopped really contact tracing for a while there. Nobody really knew where are, where this, the sources of this. Um, and that, that to me is telling that, you know, cause Doug Fork never said, never has never once at his press conference said, yep, yeah, we know that they're here. We know that we know that this is where the the virus is. I, I think the whole issue of of useful information, useful data, the extent to which our privacy rules, which goodness knows I'm a fan of privacy rules, um, but the extent to which they have actually hurt us in this entire process. And I still don't really know where this thing is primarily being spread. Um, and no one is really saying. And we've heard rumors, we've had suggestions, and some of those coming from doctors, but we don't know. Like, how does um, Dr. Williams not stand up at the microphone and say, we know for a fact it is the, the virus is being transmitted th- in these areas. We're going to put in these protocols to clamp down on the spread there. And instead, we're talking, you know, and, and, uh, well, instead, they, you know, they stand up and they tell, they, they wave their fingers at us. 
oh, you guys are spreading the disease. It's like, we wouldn't spread the disease. We wouldn't get the disease if we didn't know where, if we just avoided where they were, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's it's tough because we didn't want to sort of create a, a situation of, of people being um, uh, almost stigmatized because of where they live or the street they're on or something like that. But but in a public health emergency, it does kind of help to know where the public health problem is um, and where it's primarily being spread and where it's coming from. Uh, and saying, well, this is a big secret. We're not allowed, you know. The number of things which are not allowed to be discussed because they're they're personal is well that's another discussion for another day. Um, you know, it, it, I am a fan of privacy, but but the, there's a point where we need to know. You know, well, um, I'm, I'm glad the Halton Regional Council put forward this motion. Um, it's one that I I agree with personally, uh, but it might it might have come too little too late uh, to make a difference. Um, so we'll leave it at that for now. All right. Well, uh, that seems to be it for this week of the 905er. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we will see you next time. Bye for now. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. This is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.